I feel it's important to model vulnerability when teaching, when when performing, and uh, because there is that there is that dichotomy we have where we tend to put performers on a pedestal. There there are special people like artists and singers and dare I say it, improvisers and comedians, and then there's ordinary schlubs. You know, there's just us, the regular mass of humanity that has to pay people to entertain us. Um, whereas through being vulnerable and taking risks, we can find that actually, oh, there's some talent within me as well as insecurity. Oh, as well as feeling shy and awkward, I can also feel confident. And, and it's only by opening to all of those possibilities that we can access some of the hidden, what for some people are hidden talents. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. A few weeks ago on our 150th episode, I was joined by the up-and-coming comedy star Athena Kuglenu. And one of the things that came up a couple of times in my conversation with Athena was the importance of improvisation. And we mentioned a couple of names during that episode. Those are John Creamer and Neil Malarkey. And I promised at that time to invite both John and Neil to come on and join me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. And I'm nothing if not a man of my word. Uh, in truth, I had already asked them a while ago. We hadn't managed to make it happen. But I said, right, you've been mentioned. Now you've got to come on. And they've both come on uh, to join me. And actually, this is going to be one of a series of three episodes focused on the use of humour in business and building relationships. Because it's something that, as I said before the interview with Athena, we've touched on a number of times in various conversations, I think is really important in building relationships and getting on on business. I Personally, I've done uh, improv courses. Uh, I've done uh, sessions with John, uh, and I've also done stand-up comedy. Uh, to, to what degree of success? If you can dig out the videos on YouTube, you can decide uh, for yourself. Um, so we're going to have a, a further conversation come up in the next three or four weeks. Um, but let me introduce John and Neil, and let's get on and talk about the world of improvisation. So John Creamer discovered the magic of performance improvisation while living in the USA in 1993, and that's where he joins us from today. Uh, and he started teaching workshops in the UK in 2003. He founded the award-winning improv troupe, The May Days, in 2004, and continues to perform with them. Uh, John's taught improvisation skills to a wide range of organisations. And when he's off stage, like now, you'll find him fly fishing, I think, at the moment in Oregon in the States. Uh, and Neil Malarkey uh, is a founding member of the world famous comedy store players who have brought improv to central London for close to 40 years. Uh, like John, Neil also teaches improvisation skills to business groups. And he recently appeared in the Netflix comedy series, The Pentaveret, with his old comedy partner, Mike Myers. Uh, so John and Neil, thank you very much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you, Andy. Thank you. And in case you're wondering, that was John first and Neil second. So you're going to have to remember Neil those second. tones of voices. Neil Hello, second. this is Neil here. <laughs> so as, as, um, as usual, I have I've done my preparation, but I've said to John and Neil, we, we may follow the prep or I might just improvise. Let's let's see how we get on. But let, let's start off with Neil here. Um, Neil, 
how did you get into improvisation? Why improv and not stand up? And, and how do they differ? Stand up is all alone. You have to prepare. Improv is with your friends and you just do it in the moment. They're different art forms, but I was all headed to be a writer performer. I loved Monty Python, Peter Cook. That's what I was going to do. I went to Cambridge University and then we brought our show to a small theatre in Notting Hill. And there was a guy selling tickets and his name was Mike Myers. And we got chatting and he was funny and he remains the funniest person I've ever met, worked with. And uh, he said, I do improv. Really? What is, uh, and he'd mentioned Second City, and I'd heard of Second City because of the Blues Brothers and Saturday Night Live. And he started talking to me, and it sounded fascinating. We started doing a double act, and then the comedy store was only open on Fridays and Saturdays, and they invited us to do Sundays. Along with Kit Hollerback and Dave Cohen, the four of us, we started the Comedy Store Players. Nobody knew what improv was in those days, but I got the bug. Kit, who'd worked with uh, Robin Williams in San Francisco, and Mike Tortoise, this beautiful thing and Paul Merton came along and those early days that we English boys were being taught by these geniuses but it 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 overtook all of my feelings about being writer performer because improv is so immediate so joyous and you can create such funny things without all the effort of writing them down um, for people who don't know, um, Second City is was a, a comedy club. I think, if I remember rightly, originally in Chicago, then they also opened in Toronto. Uh, I read a wonderful book. I hadn't heard of Second City, and I'm a big comedy fan, but I found a book about it uh, last year. And it's amazing the amount of stars that came through there: John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd. Uh, you know, some amazing names that went from Second City to, to Saturday Night Live and then on to uh, greater and greater things. Um, so, so it's steeped in a, a tremendous tradition. Um, John, what, what about for you? What was your journey into improvisation? And for those who, who, you know, haven't come across it before, I mean, it was made famous in the UK with Whose Line Is It Anyway in the 1980s and, and some of the stars of that still perform with Neil at, at the Comedy Store. But for people who haven't come across it, can you can you describe it? Can you explain it for people? Sure, sure, sure. Um, my my first encounter with improvisation was in Scottsdale, Arizona, nineteen ninety three. Uh, I think I paid five dollars to go and sit in a small sweaty room in the back of an astrology shop, and um, there on the stage were half a dozen people who would um, have. Uh, they had a director, so there was someone who was off stage interacting with the audience and he would ask the audience for suggestions uh, a place a language an object an emotion just a, a you know any any sort of theme of suggestion and then the performers on stage would respond to the suggestion by immediately weaving it into what, what was happening on stage and I was, I was absolutely spellbound um, it was compelling it was funny you could tell it was improvised because there were moments when it didn't work, so it was high risk. And um, the, 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 the basic structure of, of improvising is, is performers on stage and some degree of input from, from the audience. Uh, some, some shows are very heavily suggestion dependent, so they move and shift and change quickly. And other shows, there'll be a one suggestion which is explored in depth. It just depends on the format or the, the nature of the, the particular show or structure. And at the end of the show, they said, we, we, teach, we teach classes every Monday night uh, in this very room. So uh, 
I thought, well, I'll, I'll go and take a class because like Neil, um, my genuine ambition as a child, when they said, what do you want to be when you grew up, was to join the Monty Python team. I assumed that when I left school at 18, I would just show up and, and show them how funny I was and that I knew all of their routines off by heart and they would admit me to the company. Uh, so when they when they actually folded, when Monty Python ended, uh, just disbanded, I, I was I was adrift until I found improv. <laughs> so there's there's a there's a key theme there. Is is it the anarchy of Monty Python that you think provides the link to to improv? Because it's so far apart from any other sitcom structure or stand up routine uh, structure with Monty Python it always feels like anything could happen and very often it does. So do you think that's why you both found the attraction mm. and the link between Monty Python and improv? And that's to well, either of you. With improv, anything can happen. But actually, when you go into it a bit deeper, what we're trying to create actually is a bit of structure from the seeming chaos. The audience wants mm. to see us uh, collaborate with each other, to listen to each other. Mm. And at some point, they want a story. They want the prince and the princess to be together or the treasure to be found or the dragon to be defeated. Uh, and so some people found Monty Python a bit annoying because it sort of didn't have that structure until it started doing mm. movies. But yes, there is that sense of anything can happen. But you also want to have a sense of, all oh, right, actually, I can see them now all working together. There's that little microstructure, which is if John says this, I'm going to pick it up. And if Janet says that, she's going to pick up what John said and we'll work together. That little element of, of sort of emerging structure, if you like. Mm. The, the um, I've got a, I've got a friend who allows me to use his tagline under license and his, his tagline is structure frees creativity. So it's that lovely blend of having enough structure to free the creativity, um, not too much structure to crush it, and not a lack of structure to where there is just chaos and people feel uncomfortable. And it's that it's getting that balance right and wobbling around it that I find is so thrilling. And for myself, with Monty Python, it was the way they were expressing, um, in many ways, what was unexpressible in sort of late 60s, early 70s British culture. There was the sort of madness of what was going on, but the politeness and the veneer of civility that covered up the uh, the, the the roiling strangeness of, of the culture that we grew up in. And it was like someone took the lid off the box and said, actually, is it just us? Or does it really look and feel like this sometimes? And I sort of went, that's how it looks and feels to me, yes. So there's, I think well, there's I would say... Truth. Yes, because actually we go crazy a bit like Monty Python. You can fall in love with a piece of cheese. But also John's point mm. is that what's going on isn't always what's going on. People have a secret. People play a high status character, but they've got something that means they're going to go low status. They're not as quite what they appear to be. And I wonder if maybe Monty Python were influenced by what was happening in the in Second City, which was playing with the art form, uh, allowing uh, things to go beyond uh, just sort of what might have been music hall or theatre before that. So, you know, Lenny Bruce and stuff that were sort of pushing what it is we're allowed to say and what humour mm. might involve, not just uh, old-fashioned jokes. Yeah. I, I'm One thing that sort of intrigues me is that, you know, John, you're, you, you've got 30 years' experience in improv. Neil, you've got 40 years' experience. We're coming up to 40 years' experience in improv. Uh, audience suggestions can't vary that much if performance <laughs> to performance. 
<laughs> so, I mean, you're, you're always going to get one. I, I, Neil, I think I've told you this story before, so apologies if I have, but uh, we came to the Comedy Store Players. You would have been on uh, a number of years ago for a friend's birthday, and we took a lot of friends, some of whom had never been to improv before. Uh, and one of my friend's wives got the giggles and she just shouted out the same suggestion for everything really loudly. Um, so it was name and emotion, orgasm. Name a genre of, of film, orgasm. And Orgasmic. that was followed by this huge, raucous laughter. Um, but uh, you'll always get those, I'm sure. And I, I guess there's another question in that. Maybe we'll come back to <laughs> But most audiences, I'm sure, must be predictable. So does it become easy to fall into a complacency of you you know what to, to deliver for this suggestion? Um, or do you force yourself to try something different every time? Or is it the mixture of suggestions that creates a different, uh, a different outcome each time? There, there are suggestion gatekeeping techniques, one of which is to say to an audience, give us, a, give us an, give someone shout out an object such as a dildo or a spatula, which you get 98% of the time. Or give us a hobby, such as taxidermy, which you get 90, 96% of the time. So you can preemptively sort of, you can pre-screen the, the suggestions you've heard a thousand times. And yeah, being able to um, work in a new way with something you might have worked with before is, is, uh, is a challenge. One thing we ask for with, with the Mayday, one of our current shows, we ask for the real life profession of someone's grandparent. And that is that's a, that's some really interesting input, and and we double check to make sure it's true. You know, someone said coffin maker, and we're like genuinely. And he was like, yes, my grandfather was a coffin maker. That's comedy gold. Uh, and, yes. and Neil, how about for you? Well, I get the same thing. You you get the same suggestions, so you're going to say, oh. We had that last week, which we did. <laughs> uh, or you say, actually, let's go for it now, because people will say you ask for a film style. They'll say Western. The thing is, you haven't done a Western in this place, in this laundrette on this day, because you tend to have set up a scene and there's people who are lovers in the yeah. laundrette. There's the laundrette worker. And also uh, you kind of we tend to forget everything we've done. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. So, so it's not like you're repeating anything because you forget it. That, that sometimes it's a bit weird doing two shows a day, or where we did tour every night. You're thinking, "What did I do just now? Oh, well, that was yesterday. I can't do that." And then yes. you've lost it. So you deliberately try and do something different. Um, on the other hand, you do love to have a new one, a new suggestion, like Bertolt mm -hmm. Brecht or David Lynch or something, or there's something tomorrow. And so we, we, we get Bollywood sometimes, which 20 years ago we wouldn't have had. So we love that. And we have to mm -hmm. try and understand. So I watched a few Bollywood films to understand that. On the other hand, your friend's uh, wife who was saying orgasm the whole time, I mean, that's great. That's fine. <laughs> Just say, well, clearly she's having an orgasm now, and that's fine. And then <laughs> one of the characters can have an orgasm the whole time. It's It's kind of whatever the audience gives is right in terms of, uh, you know that if somebody says Mrs. Thatcher's bottom, it's not going to be a great scene because that, you know, Boris Johnson, <laughs> you know, there's no, there's not a lot we can do with that because we don't do impressions. But if somebody says coffin maker, that is beautiful because oh. it's a, it gives us a very broad canvas. Mm. So, so would you say, what would you say is your main driver for, for putting on a show is it to entertain the audience is it to stretch yourselves is it just a pure love of the form 
what would you say really gets you out there every evening or every day, whatever it might be? Well, uh, I think we do it for the audience. You know, we, we do enjoy doing workshops and that's why we train people who are no, new to it and so forth. That's great fun. But actually, we're doing it for the audience and and you want the laughter. There's something a bit, bit weird about us. Anybody who does comedy, why do we want a room full of strangers to laugh at us? Uh, that's a bit odd, isn't it? And nevertheless, I feel yeah. we're doing it in something in service of something larger. We're sharing our vulnerability, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. But in, in, in some respects, we're coming away with an audience who've had a good time. They've laughed. They may have thought about who they are. They may have thought, oh, isn't it nice to see people collaborating? Oh, isn't it crazy mm. that woman sh- shouting orgasm the whole time? I wonder what she does in real life. Um, <laughs> but and so last night, for example, somebody said Hamburglar. Now, this was a character from the 80s. So I, I've come away learn, learning something occasionally. But generally, you're doing it like a lot of theatres. It's for the good of the audience, for the to entertain, to stretch, perhaps. But certainly in, at the comedy store, you kind of want the audience to laugh. And there's lots of improv, which isn't just for laughter, but there's plenty mm. Uh, of laughs uh, in, in even uh, you know in all sorts of improv. I, I all of all of what Neil said and and for myself, there's a sense of aliveness during performance of of things unfolding in the moment, and I know f- personally that one of my drivers is to not be a hypocrite because if as Neil and I do, I train people to do improvisation and I say, you know, step up, step up, take a bit of a risk. It's okay. It's okay. If it's not perfect, just, you know, be vulnerable. And and then if I say, yes, you go and do that. Um, I, I won't, I'll be at the back of the room commenting. If I can then step up on stage in front of a paying audience and fall flat on my face, which happens, or, you know, do, do the line that I think is brilliant and I'm alone in that. Um, then I'm actually walking the talk, which I think is really important. Well, let's pick up on that point because you've both mentioned vulnerability in those answers. And Mm. obviously, for me, that's got a great interest because my last book was on the topic of vulnerability. I understand where you're making yourself vulnerable um, by putting yourself in a a situation where you can't plan, you can't prepare. Neil's talked about the upside of not being able to plan or prepare. But the downside is that you don't know what's coming your way and you don't know whether you're or not you're equipped to deal with it. Has putting yourself through that on such a regular basis helped you in other areas of your life in terms of taking risks, uh, feeling equipped to face challenges and so forth? Yes. I'm not scared about going to big corporate offices to talk to people. Uh, All I do is improv. I listen to what they're saying. I try and use some of what they said and bounce it back to them. I remember what they said earlier. I might bring that in. Of course, I've got something to say as well, because I'm saying if you did this workshop with me, you'd have a great time. Your people would learn to collaborate, to communicate, to be more creative. But your point about vulnerability is that often people say, well, what, what, what happens when you don't know what to say, when you're stuck? And, don't, and I say, that's often the best bit. Either you come mm. up with something brilliant or something next, somebody next to you comes up with brilliant, or you go, I don't know what to say. And the audience loves you more for saying that mm-hmm. and going, uh, then if you'd been brilliant and come up with some beautifully written thing. And that's a very difficult thing for people to hear about vulnerability because it sounds like vulnerability is weak, uh, but actually it's the creative moment. And, and Brene Brown will tell us that leadership comes from vulnerability. Uh, creativity comes from vulnerability. So so it sounds like um, 
uh, if you're in a comedy improv thing, you should be perfect and successful and full of yourself all the time. But the, the, the most the most warming moments are often when we admit our own fallibility. It's again total agreement there. It's it's the um, the paradox sometimes of being on stage and inhabiting a character that does not know what's coming next. And there's this paradoxical feeling of I'm exposed as a human being, as a person, and my character is experiencing the emotions of the moment that may be a surprise to me as a person. So there's this navigating this, this sort of unknown relationship between self and character and emotion. And off stage, I find that I have gone into environments that I would not ever have been able to go into in my previous pre-improviser life because, um, you know, it, it is intimidating to walk into a place where, the, you know, these big offices and these people with important titles and, and um, business cards and everything and just walk in and say, you know, I, I, this is what I do. And this is what I offer. And, and you, you may actually not want it or like it. And to be able to just step into that moment and explore with the person whether it will be of benefit to them and, 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 and be vulnerable to the, to the potential um, rejection. You know, just to, <laughs> just, just, it, it is, and, and I, feel, I feel it's important to model vulnerability when teaching, when, when performing. And uh, because there is that... There is that dichotomy we have where we tend to put performers on a pedestal. There, there are special people like artists and singers and, dare I say, improvisers and comedians. And then there's ordinary schlubs. You know, there's just us, the regular mass of humanity that has to pay people to entertain us. Um, whereas through being vulnerable and taking risks, we can find that actually... Oh, there's some talent within me as well as insecurity. Oh, as well as feeling shy and awkward, I can also feel confident. And, and it's only by opening to all of those possibilities that we can access some of the hidden, what for some people are hidden talents. And, and if, if we don't model this as improvisers and as people who are running a workshop, it doesn't work, really. It's just a bunch of techniques. That's all it is. There's only a few of them. They're not that complicated or difficult. Neil, come on, we've been blagging it for decades, haven't we? Well, that, I've just, I've just, I'm writing a book called In the Moment, and I've said, that's it. That's the algorithm. John calls it listen, <laughs> accept, commit. Uh, that's basically yeah. listen, what, what she said. Oh, yeah, that's right. And then I'll commit to moving the, the story forward. And lest we get yeah. too serious and, and too businessy, this is great technique for networking, for being at a party, at a wedding, sitting around a table. Just uh, talk to somebody. And if you treat what they say as an offer, oh, that's mm. an offer, little gift. Oh, thank you for that. Let me gift wrap it back to you and just add a little thing. That's why our motto is yes and. Yes, what you said mm. is acceptable to me and I'm going to take it and move it forward. Oh, isn't that nice? They listen to me. Oh, and I'll say some more. Oh, great, what you said is, is interesting. Let me move it forward. So instead of thinking, which we all do, which I've got to have worked out what I'm going to say, I've got to sound interesting yep. and grown up and clever. I don't have to do anything <laughs> other than listen. And what she said is full of beautiful nuggets. And if I just add a little bit, to them then we can have a better conversation and that's why uh networking scares people but that's why this 
is such a beautiful skill in everyday lives. You can talk to anybody mm. because if you're focused on what they said, what they care about, what they've shared with you, you become able to have a conversation with anybody. We hope that you're taking away some valuable lessons from this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you would like support in developing, nurturing, and leveraging strong relationships to support you in your role, please visit andylapata.com forward slash mentoring. So I'm really glad uh, that you you talked about saying yes uh, in that answer, Neil, because if if people ask me what what's the the, the 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 one key philosophy of improvisation i think from the limited experience i've had the key takeaway is the ability to say yes or as you put it yes and um so perhaps the two of you can just explain a little bit more about that i know you've started uh explaining that neil um but but why is it so important to say yes and how does it work in an improvisation scenario and, and how is it translated into your everyday life? The, the, the reason it's such a key element of improvising is, is the element of collaboration. The, the practice of collaboration builds on saying yes to what the other person brings. You cannot collaborate unless you accept what it is they bring. Uh, it doesn't mean you have to like it. It doesn't mean that the character that you're playing has to like it. It simply means that you accept that reality and react and respond to it and see where it goes. It's a, it's a, it's a building block of, of a collaborative practice. It's something I've noticed is in the, in when people get first get exposed to improvisation, they just go berserk for the yes. I think we've spent so much of our lives saying no and resisting and to have the permission to just say yes and go with things and to be silly it unleashes a lot of creativity. And then I found that as people, if people stick with it, that it refines somewhat so that you can say yes without absurd amounts of enthusiasm and silliness, but still say yes. So it can be yes and there becomes more subtle to it, <laughs> subtlety to it. Initially, it's like rocket fuel. It's like turbocharged creativity. So Neil, yes. when, you're, when, you're training, when you're training a group, you must get some resistance initially where people don't know how to say yes and. How, how does that show up and how do you, yeah. how do you deal with that? Well, I, I caveat it by saying yes and is our motto, but we never actually say yes and, those words, on the stage. It's, it's, it's an ethos mm. underneath it. I can still say yes to your to reality by saying, John, I hate your shirt. And he'll say, and it's exactly, and he'll say, "Well, I bought it with you in mind, or I bought it from your friend Philip." And then he's still saying yes, even though the characters are disagreeing. Um, and it's actually, yeah. uh, as John says, initially yes, and yes, and I'll take over the world. Yes, and we'll take over the universe. And rather than uh, as it becomes nuanced, a way of building on one another's uh, offers. So yes, and we don't actually mm. say on stage. I say to them, it's just like doing keepy-uppies in football. You, you rarely use it on, on the football pitch, but if you've got that control over the ball, uh, it's like warming up your improv muscle to play the game yes and. It's kind of get us in the zone. It's like mm. doing your scales on the piano. Uh, then yeah. you can play beautiful music. So you don't actually say the words yes and because they're all saying, well, I don't want to say yes to my client. I don't, if they're wrong, I don't want to say yes and. Mm -hmm. Well, I say what, what you, the opposite of yes and isn't really anything particular because you can still say no but or yes but. Uh, you can still accept that they see the world in this way. 
uh, as um, my friends in On Your Feet would say, if somebody says, let's paint the room blue, there's loads of ways of saying, yes, and. You could say, yes, and I'm not sure about blue. Yes, and I'm not sure about paint. We could decorate it. Or you know, to, if, to really block it, which is the opposite of sort of, of yes, and you'd have to say, no, I don't like blue. I don't like you. I don't like paint. No, I wouldn't, never want to see you again. <laughs> and then, of course, the other improviser, it's what they do with it. You could say, of course, you're joking. You love me. And that's an offer. So it's kind of almost what the other person does with it. Uh, and so when I'm training people, they don't want to say the words yes, and. And I say, go with me. Just try it. And then see how that ex that could apply in what you do when you're working with compliance or when you're working with IT or when there's a, a client who's not quite getting it. You can still yes and them by using something of what mm. they said. Mm. Um, and Andy, in my experience, I have met two people who were psychologically incapable of literally saying yes and in front of, of a small room of people they 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 believed they were doing it and one of them was very frustrated that his team was not saying yes to him enough so i said well let's do a quick demo then you know and he was just just habitually saying no but no but to everything i offered him but believing genuinely in his mind that he was saying yes and and just just it, it it's 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 really intriguing to run into someone who has that much internal resistance to letting go of control, even briefly, in a contained, safe environment to another human being. It's uh, it's quite it's quite an experience. I've only had it twice. And, it's and by the, and, uh, the other by person, the way, people will also say yes and, but not mean it. Yes and what? Oh, the, the, why are you doing yeah. that? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes and that, I don't think that's a good idea. It's kind of, and somebody yeah, from yeah. a famous management consultancy even said to me, oh, I know this trick. You say yes, and when, when you yeah. mean yes, but, and I want to go, no. And I'll say, yeah. say, you mean yes, and that's a bad idea. Yes, and <laughs> it won't work. Yeah. Yes, and I don't like you. As if yes, and the words are the thing. No, it's the idea of listen, accept, and commit, right? Listen to what she's saying. And of course, accepting the other person's offer, as John said, is not the same as mm. approving of it, agreeing with it. Uh, you know, it's kind of acknowledging their point of view, how they feel, how they perceive. Mm. It's not necessarily saying you're right. You're saying, I see you. I, I, I think the, that's very powerful. And I can, uh, I, I can see how it would help in terms of creativity. I can see how it would help in terms of collaboration i can see how it would help in terms of professional relationships uh so it's a very positive attitude it, it creates positivity uh where there might be negativity otherwise so, so if yes and is the number one rule in improv which you might challenge me and say it's not that's my assumption at the moment what would be the next two so let's let's have one from each of you john well i'm gonna i'm gonna challenge you immediately andy <laughs> because um i for me for me, the number one rule in rule, the number one guideline in improv is is listening, is to listen, and and this is something that we have, um, I believe, neglected. We've lost. We've had. Um, we don't value listening as highly as we could. In order to say yes, one must listen, and and listening is a is a. It's a really potent device because, and I, I've, I've been a long time at this game. It only came to me a few years ago, and this this was a revelation. Um, for me, it was a revelation. 
You can only listen to what is happening now. You cannot listen to what Neil's about to say because he hasn't said it yet. You cannot listen to what Andy just said. You can only listen to what is happening now. And the, the, the act of intentionally listening can bring more of us into the present moment, make us more vulnerable and available so that when we're saying yes, we're doing so more wholeheartedly. Even if, you know, as Neil's saying, yes, and blue's a stupid colour, it's, 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 it's only through the listening that we can get to that place of saying yes with whatever emotion we bring to it. We could I, be I dancing. Challenge me. Like for me, number one, we could be dancing on a pinhead because uh, you can't really say yes and yeah. unless you've listened. And real listening to me, and exactly. I call it intentive listening. You haven't listened unless you've said yes and. Uh, listening is an active process. <laughs> is is I, I can I can listen. Look like I'm listening actually, but I'm looking out the window and twiddling my thumbs. Real listening means what you've just said has made an impact upon me, and sometimes. Uh, yeah. You do a bit more yes, sometimes you do a bit more and, if I dare say. And all part and parcel of the ethos uh, is make the other person look good. And you do that by listening mm. and working with their offer. And of course, again, your characters may be having a fight or having a disagreement, but making that person look good because you use what they gave you and you, you give them something they can work with. That's what's really interesting to me, to people. They don't really realize that, oh, you're comedians, so you're trying to knock each other. No, we're not. We're trying to make the other person look good because right. actually I look great if she's done a great bit. Uh, and sometimes I'm passing the ball for somebody else to score the goal. Sometimes they're passing to me, but make the other person look good. And you can apply that to networking, to negotiation, to leadership. And, yeah. and it's amazing how yeah. if you switch what people's priorities might be is I've got to win at all costs, which is, oh, actually we can win together. Mm. And that may be, I have to swallow my pride, may look, start doing something i didn't expect to do uh but if i make the other person look good through listening and yes and then we begin to be co-creative and we can be confident to face uncertainty and uh, uh complexity for things world's changing but if we do it with a yes and mindset we can navigate it together i, I think on this so Andy, this is yeah, so, so Andy. This is going to get very ugly, isn't it? It's like you know, Neil's Neil's sticking with yes and being the prime <laughs> the prime driver. I'm this, this is it's to me they're so tightly woven you can't really separate them in the moment. And, and uh, yes. you just focus on making each other look good, and that's the most important thing. <laughs> can I? Can I? I, I, want, I want to interrupt yeah, the um, my director when I first learned improv was was phenomenal. His name uh, was Louis Anthony Russo. And something he said that stuck with me was um, the best improvisers aren't the ones that get the big laughs. They're the ones, as, as Neil just said, I can pass so the other person scores the goal. And the really great improvisers, in my mind, are the ones that set up scenarios that pe within which people can shine. And it doesn't have to be them. It can be, you know, it can be someone who's new to the game. It can be someone who's having a wobbly day, but you, you, you make that person, you know, you, you, you make that person look good and, and everyone wins. When you're on stage and you're, you, you're, you're putting on an improv show, do you find that there is more space between different characters speaking than there might be in an ordinary conversation? So the, the reason I ask that is Stephen Covey's idea of active listening and, and the sense that we're often listening, we're often formulating our response while the other person is still talking. 
and, and that leads to people talking over other people, feeling they have to answer straight away because they're frightened of the pause in between and not letting the other person get to the end of their sentence before they formulated an answer. If we take on board everything that you guys have said about the importance of listening, the importance of being in the moment, the importance of uh, really creating that right space, do you find that the conversations on stage differ from the conversations you'll witness day to day? And do you see that then play out in your uh, the way you engage with people in, in ordinary day-to-day life? Wow. Yes. <laughs> As, uh, so I'm going to go back to listening here. You're not just listening to what they're saying. You're listening to how they're saying mm. it. And you're listening for when they've finished. So Paul Z. Jackson, who's uh, also somebody from the Applied Improv Network, in fact, he was president, may still be, but he's written a book called Life Pass. And one of his tips is short turn taking. Now, there'll be times when I'm in a meeting and I may mm. talk more. There'll be times when I talk less. And so, again, I've even seen a graph of how much yes to do, how much and. Sometimes I'll do more and. Sometimes I'll do just you do yes. If you've got the ball, you're running. I'll just do yes. I'll be keeping with you. Uh, there'll be times that I'll be doing more and. So, yes, we do leave more space. And Mike Myers, I don't know if John's done this one. We, every week we did workshops in those early days. We played a game called Focus, which is literally this, it could be eight people on stage and only one person is moving. Now, the thing is, the mm. one person changes. So you sometimes give it. So you stop and somebody takes it from you. Or sometimes it could be a very tiny movement of the hand. And this is with no words at all. Giving and taking focus was a vital exercise we did. And so you don't, on the improv stage, mm. when it's going well, have somebody stealing focus. I do my bit. And then I realize yeah. at some point I'll throw it back to you because you've got something bubbling under or you take it because I'm looking like I'm flailing. <laughs> so focus is really important. That's that's why listening is important. And as you say, there are people and you can see networking events or similar where somebody's determined to tell you why they're right and why <laughs> you need to know more about what they think. And I just love watching it sometimes because I'm thinking, that person is now mentally checked out of the conversation that you've just dissed because you are so right about stuff. Yeah. The, the, um, when, when the, the question sparked for me, Andy, the idea of conversations on stage between characters and personally off stage as me, I have a default pace and tone and everything, uh, on stage as a character, that can really change and you can see i think in the early days of improvising when people see improv for the first time they're always amazed at how quick clever and funny the improvisers are it's such a furious pace how can anyone think that quickly the some of my favorite performers someone like tj and dave there will be long 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 silences on stage between the two of them there will be very slow conversations. There will be intense, fast, dramatic conversations. And having the ability to tune in to that variety. And, and I loved what um, Neil said about um, input. I have an a improv teacher, his, his, his concept is word count. And he just said, when you're on stage, imagine there's a word counter underneath you. If you're sitting on a bench talking to another performer or there's three or four of you in a scene, kind of make just check in with the word counter and see how many words, you know, 
be just be mindful and conscious of how much space you're taking. And again, I, you know, I share with Neil that complete sort of queasiness about people that have to prove they're right or they know something or it, it just it just doesn't it doesn't really gain much does it for anyone it's interesting as it's something that i i have to learn with this podcast because obviously in every other part of my professional world i'm brought in as the expert on the topic now here i'm shining a light on someone else very often on the topic i'm the expert of now with you guys it's easy to sit back even if i have opinions and let <laughs> you guys run because this isn't my topic of expertise but when i have someone in and we're much more honed in on professional relationships specifically it's very tempting for me to want to hog the space or at least half of it but I can't because that's not my job Uh, so you actually find yourself biting your lip biting your tongue and stopping yourself (laughs) speaking and and giving that space to someone else Uh, and and yeah it's it's a tough discipline Uh, so so it plays out there as well and and John you say you have your own pace you always come across to me as someone who's very thoughtful before he speaks and maybe that does come from the listening that you you practice when you're uh when, when you're 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 practicing improvisation uh guys i would i would hope so. <laughs> absolutely uh john and neil i i have to tell you um i said i might improvise i have only asked two of the questions that i originally <laughs> planned um i had a load of questions to ask you about the links between improv and building professional relationships and, and, and uh, being successful in leadership roles. You've answered all of those as we went along anyway. I think the connection between the improv world and the, the professional world is very, very clear. Uh, and, you know, this is part of a series on why humour is so important in business. And, and just with, as a th- with Athena, where we talked about her stand-up career, I, I think the takeaways are, are very evident. Uh, I've mentioned that you both run programmes. Uh, you, I've mentioned you both part of troops, the May Day players for for John and the Comedy Store players for Neil. Uh, perhaps you can just finish just um, pointing people where they can find you. So, John, um, for 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 my gang, just themaydays.com or themaydays.co.uk for those who mistype, and um, that's that's where you find <laughs> us and the classes and the retreats and performances that we offer to the world and you're based in brighton are most of the performances and workshops there or are you uh, all around we we are all around we we began in brighton but we have geographically scattered to the to the to the far right. winds so so we're all over fantastic the and neil i perform every sunday with the comedy store players so comedystoreplayers.com um and i would urge people to take a course and the teachers at Maydays are fantastic but wherever you are in the world take a course understand what it means all this stuff because but you can see John and I got infected with this virus a long time ago Uh, but then go and see a show as well because all the stuff we've talked about is all quite highfalutin but then you'll see how it makes sense that joy of two or more people on stage sharing this moment of uncertainty the moment of becoming together Mm. And, and I'll back that up. I love going to the comedy store players. I've been several times, not for a while. I know I'm long overdue a visit, Neil. Um, it, it's one of London's hidden secrets because you get to see you know, not just yeah. Neil, but you, you see Paul Merton every, pretty much every week or most weeks. You see Josie Lawrence on a regular basis. You see some real giants of the comedy scene and, and people who 
you know, don't realise that these these stars of the screen <laughs> are performing on a regular basis in central London. It's just off Leicester Square. So I highly recommend that. Um, and, you know, the, the work that both John and Neil do is exceptional. So, guys, thank you very much for joining me. I uh, really appreciate it. I always enjoy talking to you both. Great to get you both together on the same show as well. Thank you for having us. And it's lovely to see John and hear John. Yeah, likewise, Andy. Thanks for having us. And yeah, Neil, good to see you again. So thanks to both John and Neil. There you go. The Connected Leadership Podcast, connecting our guests as well, or reconnecting our guests. Thank you very much for joining us. There will be a third show coming up. We're due to record in a couple of weeks. So if all being well, we will broadcast that broadcast that before the end of August. That's with uh, Jeremy Nicholas and Tim Gard. Jeremy is former BBC presenter, former Radio London presenter, uh, who teaches humour in presentations and Tim Gard from America, who is without doubt one of the funniest speakers uh, on the circuit. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that, uh, both always entertaining. So I'm hoping that will be out before the end of August. I've uh, got some really other great shows in the bank for you. So do stick with us for your summer listening. Uh, please share the, share the good word, rate us and review us. Always helps. And I'll see you again soon on the Connected Leadership Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe. Tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great connected leadership tips.